Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths, you're making me laugh here, turn to <laughs> issuing proclamations. I'm still going. I'm not stopping. Your guides to this journey, my co-host, the novelist Phil Clyde, me, the knocker off of tall hats, Jacob Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Okay, so this is the family episode. And Nailed it, Jake. Yeah. Thank you. For, thank you, friend. Uh, all credit goes to Phil's wife. I don't know if we're putting her name out there publicly, so I, I don't mean to uh, like uh, deperson her in some sort of grossly misogynistic way. <laughs> On the family episode, I mean actually to celebrate her. But I don't know uh, if we want to publicize her name. But it was her idea that we should do something on the family. We both loved that idea. And uh, I think we've been told a number of times by listeners that they – what have we been told? That they like hearing us talk about fatherhood or that they have noticed that we talk a lot about fatherhood? Maybe both. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't heard any any negative comments about – not yet. There's time. Um, attempt to continue the population of the earth. Right. And fulfill God's commandments. Um, or that specific commandment, at least. Right. So old friend of the podcast, Ian Marcus Corbin, provides our manifesto for this week. And it's his essay treatise, really, How Money Culture Hurts the American Family. And we're pairing that with what I thought was going to be an inspired pairing. Now I'm not so sure, Um, but we'll we'll get into all of that. We're pairing it with Lena Dunham's um, epochal, generational, uh, millennial-defining HBO series Girls, specifically season one, episode seven, Welcome to Bushwick, a.k.a. The Cracksident. And I should say that... I had already read uh, Ian's essay when I thought of um, doing the girls Lena Dunham thing. We were talking about doing a Tolstoy story and some other stuff. And then I had this genius idea. Oh, we'll do Lena Dunham and girls because that's the sort of uh, zeitgeisty millennial distillation of the millennial attitude towards family, or so I thought, more on that later. Um, But Phil, tell me, in your mind, I I gave my version of how this came to be. How did this come to be in your version? Uh, You said you wanted to do girls. You felt very strongly about it. And then after, like, we'd settled on that, I realized you'd never watched an episode. And uh, right. So, right. Yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. So, um, okay. So, <laughs> our listeners now can't wait till the end of the podcast where we just no, no, no. I have insights to I talk have, about girls. No, I have I have things I to say. I I've, I saw, I've seen the whole series, and I think it's actually really right. a genuinely fascinating series. So, I know I'm fascinated by this, which I hear from a lot of like smart people who I like and respect. And, uh, but okay, more on that later. So Ian's essay, how money culture hurts the American family is, uh, first a, an historical argument 
And he's making the case. He's not the first to make it, but he provides a you know a good compact presses of the historical argument for how the nuclear family is really a, a product of economic changes, and in in particular the form of the nuclear family that we have now in the U.S. and in the U.K. and in other uh, post-industrial countries is a product of chiefly first of industrialization and then of uh, post-industrialization in producing a small, compact, mobile family unit cut off from larger extended family ties that is most conducive to being a kind of fungible supply of labor. And then in making that case, he's also arguing that the, the worship of money as an end in itself, and he refers to it as a... Uh, and so, then in making that... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the actual very beginning of the essay is, our word culture finds its root in the Latin cultus, meaning caretaking or worship. Every human culture is powered by some sense of what is highest, most valuable, most worth pursuing or preserving, right? Um, this worship is enacted in the forms of both belief and action, what we value and what we do. And the argument, argument that he's making is that sort of um, the changes in our economic life, in our culture, uh, have led us to a point where money is fundamentally the thing that we worship. He says, uh, uh, in a culture like ours, one that has become misaligned to the needs of its people, and which often leads them away from human flourishing, there might be an ambient, ill-defined sensation of futility, anxiety, fear, or rage floating just beneath the surface. There might, depending upon the available technology, be a widespread half-conscious flight to the psychic distractions and chemical sedations that most able to dull the subterranean current of dread. We find ourselves in such a situation now. Opioid, pornography, and smartphone addictions, deaths of despair, widespread obesity, these are evasions, reactions to life lived in a time and place where the dominant culture, our core values and practices runs against some of our deepest, most not natural and non-negotiable desires, which he then lists. We want, among other things, commitment, belonging, safety, stability, and nurture. We want to build and maintain, to see things through and make them better, to be to know deeply and be known. Most of us want deep relationships, children, families, descendants. But our culture pulls us constantly. But that's what away he's really getting at. Yeah. That, that's what he's really getting at is that uh that the what most people want is family, right. and um, he's providing a you know a philosophical case for that, um, and you know he's providing a philosophical case for um, it being natural and for people wanting it, and then arguing that the structure of the family, such as it is now, which is a, a kind of product of this particular economic arrangement, um, cuts against our natural desire for the family. Uh, so it's, it's both an argument about how the, the nature of the economy makes it difficult to form families implicitly, though he doesn't get into that as much. And even more an argument for how the structure of the economy uh, 
makes it difficult to um, sort of get as much as we want out of the families that we have. And he's actually, I think, making both of those arguments at once, right? Because the first half of the essay is laying out the, the case for how the nuclear family is a product of these historical economic changes. Um, and then the second half of the essay is making the case for why the nuclear family, which is what we have now, could be better, um, in part by making it less nuclear, less atomized, um, but also in part uh, by making, you know, making the units of the family less interchangeable, less um, distracted by wage and earning pressures. Yeah. And the, 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 the thing that he puts his finger on, I mean, look, one of the things that, that like was the driver for wanting to do this episode. I mean, just when my wife and I uh, started having kids, it was just one of these like strange realizations of like how ill-suited America is to actually like making it easy to have kids and live, right? You know, um, uh, my wife and I both work. It's it's um, uh, complicated finding, ensuring that you have childcare. You know, like I mean, I have the benefit of of a pretty flexible job, right, which helps a lot. But <clears throat> the the raising of our kids has often been like a weird patchwork of things. And then also we, we heavily rely on family. Right. And the sort of realm of what you're supposed to do in terms of your public life and your career, and then somehow fitting that together with managing a family, um, it's not just that they, you know, they're like difficult to manage, but they seem like fundamentally uh, almost like sort of have a different kind of like philosophical premise behind it, right? Overlapping magisteria. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The old atheist phrase, like they don't, yeah. they shouldn't intrude on each other. Each may have its value. But the, they shouldn't intrude on each other at all. They belong to separate domains. And n neither should make a claim on the other, essentially. Right, right. Um, you know, the, you know, and he goes in, there's a lot of practical prescriptions in, in, in Ian's piece. Um, but one of the, the, the things that was sort of interesting to me was like, you know, if you want to get to the practical prescriptions, you first have to kind of agree with his sense of what human beings are, what they want, and um, and how the culture is at odds with it. And his, you know, he makes this point that's been made before. Money is sort of this totally interchangeable thing, right? Um, uh, so have you read Trust, uh, when the Pulitzer last year, yeah. Fernand Diaz? It's an interesting novel. Um, it is about a financier around the time of the, um, uh, the great depression before, and it's talking about 
this character who becomes fascinated by money and finance. He became fascinated by the contortions of money, how it could be made to bend back upon itself to be force-fed its own body. The isolated, self-sufficient nature of speculation spoke to his character and was a source of wonder and an end in itself, regardless of what his earnings represented or afforded him. Luxury was a vulgar burden. The access to new experiences was not something his sequestered spirit craved. Politics and the pursuit of power played no part in his unsocial mind. Games of strategy like chess or bridge had never interested him. If asked, Benjamin would probably have found it hard to explain what drew him to the world of finance. It was the complexity of it, yes, but also the fact that he viewed capital as an antiseptically living thing. It moves, eats, grows, breeds, falls ill, and may die, but it is clean. This became clear to him in time. The larger the operation, the further removed he was from its concrete details. There was no need for him to touch a single banknote or engage with the things and people his transaction affected. All he had to do was think, speak, and perhaps write. And the living creature would be set in motion, drawing beautiful patterns on its way into realms of increasing abstraction, sometimes <clears throat> following appetites of its own that Benjamin could never have anticipated. And this gave him some additional pleasure, the creature trying to exercise its free will. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like a novelization of the Austrian school idea of markets as um, intelligence, uh, a kind of raw, you know, disembodied, decentralized intelligence. An antiseptic, um, right? Never touching yeah, yeah. anything. And let me give you right. one other. This is from Mailer on Chicago, in the siege of Chicago, where he has this incredible description of the stockyards, right? Yeah. Yes, Chicago was a town where nobody could ever forget how the money was made. It was picked up from floors still slippery with blood. And if one did not protest and take a bow of vegetables, one knew at least that life was hard. Life was in the flesh and in the massacre of the flesh. One breathed the last agonies of beasts. So something of the entrails and the secrets of the gut got into the faces of native Chicagoans. A great city, a strong city with faces tough as leather hide and pavement. Um, yeah, the opposite view. Um, and I, <laughs> I like, I like that disconnect. I mean, Mailer uh, is sort of horrified by the stockyards, but thinks the fact that, um, sort of celebrates the fact that people look at what the money is connected to, and it feels yeah. like, you know, our culture is just sort of moving more and more into that realm of abstraction, right? Um, and it's not just in terms of the fact that money is a dominant ethos, but sort of uh, so much of what modern culture consists of is, is mediation between sort of direct contact, right? Um, yeah, mediation and uh, uh, underlying belief that the individual is an all-powerful agent who is capable of constructing or purchasing their own identity, determining ultimately their own wants and desires, uh, cut off from lineage, cut off from environmental factors, cut off from obligations. Um, so the, like the, the worship of money as a protean good is not unrelated to the worship of self as a 
a protean good. Like the, the worship of money is a protean good feeds into the idea of uh, a kind of accumulative self that is itself protean, uh, protean in the sense that it, it isn't oriented towards definite or particular ends of like, this is, I should lead my life in, in this way to secure the, you know, or, or to, to immerse myself in these things, which are ends in themselves. It's like a constant sort of accumulative process, uh, status acquiring process that, uh, you know, I, I, I've said this before, but I very much had this. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, um, pretend like my hands or, or my conscience or my intellect are clean with any of this. I very much had the sense when I was younger that uh, marriage was something, family was something one entered into after having sort of reached a sufficient degree of self-perfection, self-attainment. <laughs> that was how I saw it at a, a deep level, you know, at a, if you had asked me, I might have put it in different terms because I right. perhaps would have recognized a certain vulgarity in that formulation or a, like a vulgar sort of secularism in that formulation that I would have found unappealing, unromantic, un, unconnected. Nevertheless, that's how I thought. You know what I mean? And right. that's how I felt, whether I could have said it that way or not. And I look at that now one must pursue a, one's individual goods or you know whether it's like you can't have kids until you have you know achieved a certain level in your career or whether it's like this right. set of experiences that you're supposed to have that are kind of both speaking of fungibility and pr like yeah. there it's the same thing right, right. Uh, you acquire the experiences you acquire the status in your in your career um yeah no exactly that's really how i saw it and um, and I look at that now as a tragic mistake, as a tragic misapprehension. I really, I do, you know. And when I and look, the thing that Ian doesn't touch on, but that is the sort of for me the ghost haunting all of this is all of the uh, friends I have who don't have children and who are struggling terribly with that now or who are trying later in life to have children and or um have run into difficulties and it 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 breaks my heart and it's um and and i know from my own social circles i know um i know how many people shared precisely the sort of worldview that I just described in relation to when the appropriate time to have kids is, what kids mean, what marriage and family means, which is a sort of crown on the individual life, right? Like yeah. you, you complete yourself as an individual, you acquire what you're supposed to acquire, you collect the experiences you're supposed to collect. And then as a kind of sinecure, as a sort of, you know, a reward for that, then maybe you get married and have kids when you've exhausted your own inertial force to some, or, you know, done enough or whatever it right. is. And if you have the financial that, means to, yeah. But that sense that, that that's how it's supposed to work 
and that it's low status or to have kids before having done all that would represent a sort of personal failure, uh, uh, you know, that that really has gotten into people's heads in our generation. And maybe it's not true of people 15 years younger than us, but I think it's people of our generation and broadly speaking, social milieu, um, but not it's not just, you know, sort of creative professionals and literati, right? Like the 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 increase in childlessness is not an upper middle class phenomenon in America. Um, you know, it's much, much more widespread than that. Uh, so this is not like, you know, you have uh, huge working class families still and and the the upper middle class is sort of fallen into a kind of decadent sterility, if anything, right? Like it's skewed the other way because you need enough uh, money to have kids and it's more and more difficult to achieve what appears to be the foundation. This is a point the the People's Policy Project, which is Matt Brunig's uh, thing is a paper on the the Family Fund Pack, a suggestion for increased benefits for American families. And they point out that like, if you compare us to Europe, US spends virtually nothing on benefits for families with children. Recent survey found a fourth of people between the ages of 20 and 45 had fewer or expected to have fewer children than they wanted. The most common reasons were economic. 64% said childcare is too expensive. 44% said they can't afford more children. 43% said they waited too long because of financial instability. And then points out that 21% of American children live in relative poverty, uh, which is a higher percentage than a European country. And a significant factor sort of driving families in below the poverty poverty line is if you have children, it puts more resource constraints and there's not enough sort of social benefits to help people out. Um, and so about uh, half of poor adults who currently live in families with children are poor because they had kids uh, sort of fit below the poverty line because they had kids, right? Which is a, a, a function of, of our priorities as a, as a country. All the pain inside amplified And, you know, one of these things, too, is I think and this is a point that, do you know Annette Beyer, the interesting so. philosopher, she's an article called Trust and Antitrust, and she has this complaint about the Enlightenment tradition, right? Uh, she calls the male fixation on contract, and she points out that, like, you know, the great moral theorists in our tradition not only are all men, they're mostly men who had minimal adult dealings with, and so were then minimally influenced by women. And with a few significant exceptions, uh, they're a collection of gays, clerics, misogynists, and Puritan bachelors. It should not surprise us, then, that particularly in the modern period, they managed to relegate to the mental background uh, the web of trust tying most moral agents to one another and to focus their philosophical attention so single-mindedly on cool, distanced relations between more or less free and equal adult strangers, Mm. say the members of an all-male club, with membership rules and rules for dealing with rule breakers, where the form of cooperation was restricted to ensuring that each member could read his times in peace and have no one step on his gouty toes. Yeah, that's insightful. I mean, there's a... That attitude seems to permeate... uh, or that 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 sort of underlying assumption, contractual. Morris Glassman, who we've spoken to before, my friend, uh, 
founder of Blue Labor, talks about the move from contract back to covenant in the economy, right? There's mm -hmm. uh, everything is everything now is structured through these contractual relations, publicly structured through these contracts. So you have a you have a society that maximizes individual expressiveness through, you know, mediated through consumer terms, but maximizes individual expressiveness um, and surrounds that with a kind of like contractual, therapeutic, bureaucratic uh, social organization and uh, seems not to be working out well for a lot of people. Right. Right. I mean, the, the, like they're really, um, listen, I, I was about to say that there really seems to be a tremendous amount of sadness and dissatisfaction um, around family and um, loving relationships um, among Americans of our generation. And, and I would say the generation immediately, whatever, millennial, maybe even Zoomer too. Um, Liz Brunig, Matt Brunig's wife, wrote a piece for – is she still at the New York Times or she's not there anymore? I thought she moved to the Atlantic. Yeah. Okay. That might be right. So this is back when she was at the New York Times. She wrote a piece in defense of her decision to have a kid when she was 25, right? Right. Which to me is a, a great idea, you know, and, I, and I'm glad that she – If you were in the uh, military, this is not like a weird thing. No, 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 of course not. Yeah. Um, uh, not a weird thing at all. And, but, but, you know, but it's become a weird thing for many people in America. So she, right. weird enough that she had to write a defense of it and weird enough that that defense occasioned like a vitriolic backlash from people arguing that, you know, it was fascistic, uh, patriarchal, misogynistic, whatever, her um, making a kind of left-wing Catholic case for mm -hmm. um, for having a kid at 25 was a, a provocation. And that's a powerful current. It's a powerful social current, this opposition to this view of uh, family as something that's suspect unless it's totally chosen. Like, I, I think that the, the attitude she encountered or the opposition she encountered, the opposition to somebody like her having kids young, is that in having kids young, you are reinforcing the notion that this is natural and good and part of a sort of natural order of things, as opposed to if you have kids when you're 38, 43, whatever, after you've sort of uh, achieved a certain level of career or what have you, that connotes a family of sort of deliberateness and of choice and of deliberate, deliberately constructed family that fits into certain uh, social and class expectations, right? And so the the unnaturalness of it then becomes an asset um, because it suggests that the person, uh, as in particular the woman, the mother, has not had to sacrifice anything for this and has done this in a way that didn't 
cause them to to detour off of their chosen career or, or learning or or whatever. And so that's acceptable. But Brunig's decision was um, like taking away her prime years as a public figure, as an earner or whatever, and was therefore reactionary. And I think that that sentiment is um, fairly powerful and has both a kind of popular expression like you would get in the response to the Brunig piece and then an even more pointedly ideological expression like you get from, you know, this whole family abolition movement. You're familiar with this uh, family abolition? Uh, vaguely, vaguely. It's, it's, there's not that much to it. But mm-hmm. Essentially, look, it, it's it's not a it's not a an obscure thing um, like it was. There was a big verso book about this by Sophie Lewis, Abolish the Family, um, and it uh, it was positioned to be um, like the next big thing in sort of like left wing pseudo intellectual in defense of looting type circles, and then I think it got derailed by the pandemic, but the argument essentially is that, you know, the family is an inherently nuclear family in particular is an inherently, um, capitalistic, repressive, oppressive structure, and that we need to destroy the family such as it exists, which is a kind of capitalist slave function. And replace yeah, this it is, with this is nothing. I mean, it's like the Marxist, the bourgeoisie is torn away from the family relationship, its sentimental veil, and has reduced it to a mere money relationship, right? I mean, this is yes, but but overlaid with you know uh, gender theory, etc. And um, and also the the Marxist argument was not that this was a good thing necessarily, um, or the traditional Marxist argument. Um, but the, but this family abolition stuff was, is, you know, it's chic. It's like, it's got a currency. And, and so that's, that's part of How much to care about the stuff that's at the fringes like that. Like there's always going to be something like that. And there's also sort of on the conservative side, this bizarre, like, you know, like trad wife fixation. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's kind I of. I think they're like, both worth. I think they're both worth caring about. I don't think either is all that fringe, frankly. I mean, they correspond to. Yeah, they correspond to, to elements that are sort of more broadly in the culture. Um, they also they share a, something in common, which is that they reproduce and reify the very conditions of alienation that they claim to be addressing. Right. So one of the things with the whole trad wife obsession is, uh, you know, the, the, can, the can, claim, can you explain that? Maybe explain what yes. a trad wife is. I'm not hundred percent sure. So a trad wife is a kind of shorthand for a. Um, traditional wife. So, you know, for a wife who stays at home, doesn't work, or if she works, subordinates work to raising her children and is uh, the kind of keeper of the household and is the, uh, you know, the, the man earns, right? And the woman stays at home and attends to the needs of the family. 
by itself, there's nothing wrong with that. But the thing about the whole kind of trad wife construction is that it totally uh, ignores the ways in which the current situation of a stay-at-home mother might be alienating and not conducive to like the the fulfilling the obligations of family right so rather than say ah, if we really want to kind of venerate motherhood if we really if we really want to place the family as the highest good then maybe it's not actually ideal to have such a strict separation between the father's role and the mother like maybe the father ought to be more involved in the family too for one for another the trad wife thing is like Again, you've just produced a kind of isolated individual agent, the trad wife, right? Yeah. But if if motherhood is so important, you'd want that the mother should be buttressed by a support structure, by a, a you know. So rather than like this image of the sort of super, su- like the the super. 50s mom who's like doing YouTube videos about how she pickles her own vegetables in between Bible study sessions or whatever. I mean, that has a sort of appeal as a commodity, but I don't think is actually what makes the most sense in terms of the health of the family. Maybe it's... um, You were talking about like individual private things, right? Versus like seeing this as a common good, right? Uh, and this is where it gets, sort of gets back to the net buyer and, 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 you know, the sort of fixation on contract is about maximizing individual freedom and human choice and agency, right? Which is obviously a good thing and, and <clears throat> uh, important for America existing. Um, and, you know, sort of getting past um, sort of the shackles of an older order. And... And then at a certain point, that becomes because humans live best in in communities and families. Um, in you know that that individuals are not really individual, right? That they're that, that that to 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 be a person is to be the center of a sort of network of of um, relationships, right? Uh, and that sort of just satisfying pure the individual as individual um, is is just becomes a sort of satisfaction of appetite, right? Uh, without meaning, you know, one of the points that Ian makes is that a, a protean culture is ultimately a nihilistic one. Nothing here and now, nothing visible or graspable is worthy of my commitment. The only thing I'm sure of is that I need to maintain my ability to wriggle free of any belonging, to trade this thing I have for that should future inclination demand it. Money is the practical level, lever of this protean freedom, and it cuts hard against many of the things we actually need the most. And um, and later in the essay, he points out that many of our pop culture's most fervent love songs, from Beyonce to Bruno Mars to Drake and Panic at the Disco, are penned in praise of wealth and status. This idolatry needs to be resisted. And like, I don't know if you found this, like as a father, some of the songs, some of the songs that they play for my kids in school are so vile. And I don't even mean like in terms of... Give me an example. What's, what are you talking about? Well, I already talked about the... There's like an Ariana Grande song that like they did a kid's version of, which is literally about like 
how having money and buying things makes you happy. That is the point of the song. Mm. And if you don't think mm. it's like a lyric, that's literally like, if you don't think that that's true, you're just not rich enough. You know, there's a, <laughs> there's a hit song right now. Um, uh, by 21 Savage and Doja Cat. Here's the line. New money like I got a printer. I ain't buying these bitches. I rent them. I mean, there's like, um, I remember I was in Medellin and I saw a guy uh, on public transportation who across his neck had a tattoo that read money and whores, right? Um, ah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, which is sad uh, for a variety of reasons, right? And whereas, you know, one of the points that, that um, Ian makes is like, there are all these things that sort of appetites that can be fulfilled or, you know, sort of turned into other things. And then anything sort of, he says, a spouse, offspring, a family, a home, these things, if pursued well, involve long duration. Like anything real, they're necessarily imperfect, not quite as you wish they were, and not infinitely changeable, decidedly illiquid. To treat them with any kind of decency, you must make your peace with being tied down, kept from other possibilities, restricted. A money-centered culture such as ours rebels against such confinement. Yeah. I, listen, I think back to um, to our conversation with Beth, Becca Rotham and... Yeah. Um, her reservations about having kids and her, you know, she discussed this with us on the podcast. So it's um, something she was comfortable um, airing out publicly, but clearly Becca is not only uh, trying to pursue money, right? No, she's, she's, um, However, interested in a maximal degree of, I think, individual freedom um, and uh, a, a maximal degree of intellectual freedom. And there's no doubt that, uh, first of all, there's no question that the burden of child rearing in most relationships falls disproportionately on the mother. Well, also, right? also Becca's interested in art, Right. Well, which is so public, this which is, is also a public good, you know. It, uh, you art know. is a public good. I don't yeah. know how much that. Well, why do you why do you bring that up in the sense that uh, she's not retreating into a kind of pure individualism? Like she's no. still. No. Yeah, but you could say you could say the same for somebody who. Um. I mean, look, I, I think that art, unlike other kinds of professions, uh, that um, dispositionally the artist, the intellectual um, might have more legitimate reasons than other people for not wanting to be burdened um, with children. It, th those reasons are not uh, compelling to me personally. They're not mm -hmm. palatable to me personally. But I, I don't think that a, an artist and um, an accountant are interchangeable widgets that have the same considerations in relation to this. Um, so I, I can understand the argument for why an artist would want to be um, 
unencumbered in that way. I think, however, that family is not just a, a it's not just a question of how it affects the individual in relation to their work and that if you think about family as the sort of shape of the node of all social relations in a society and as the shape of the meeting of all generational relations in a society, right? Like it's where young meets old. It's where middle age kind of achieves its purpose, which is as a bridge between youth and old age. It's just, it's an enriching experience. The argument that I made to a friend of mine, I had a, a very um, heartfelt, intense conversation with a very, very close friend of mine, somebody I care about very deeply, who was struggling with the, you know, whether she really wanted to have children or not. And in part, struggling because she has a very, she's a brilliant person, uncomfortable with traditional gender roles, and Mm -hmm. wasn't sure she wanted to be so like, there's no getting out of mother, right? Like once you're mother, you're mother. And she wasn't sure whether she was comfortable with that. And the thing that I said to her was, it will make like it's a richer form of experience than you will be capable of finding through anything else. So for you, as an intellectual, as a connoisseur of experience, and not intellectual in the arid sense, but for you as somebody who is a connoisseur of human lived experience and who wants to live the deepest kind of life you can and whose concern in part is that in becoming a mother, you'll be forced to forego that. In some ways you will be forced to forego that. You're not entirely wrong, right? Or or that will become married to a kind of permanent obligation that will not simply be about luxuriating in pure experience. On the other hand, it will push you deeper into the texture of of human life, into a place that is inaccessible to you otherwise, and into a kind of vantage as this bridge between young and old, as this bridge between married and unmarried, as this sort of focal point of human relations that like you just can't get to any other way what one of the wonderful things about having kids is like you have a superpower to make your older relative smile you know yeah 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 it's so true man um it's so true it's uh i just you know you just bring a baby <laughs> it's, all of a sudden it, 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 um, it unlocks new avenues of experience, not just between you and, and the child, but between you and your parents, you and your, you know, <clears throat> your aunts and uncles and great aunts and. Un, unattainable through other means, right? Yeah. You become someone different to them yeah. as a father and are then capable of like life is long, right? And to stay sort of essentially in the same role at 50 that you were in at 25 
could have a flattening. Um, there's a monotony to it. And you can try and offset that monotony more or less successfully. And some people are very successful to the point where it doesn't feel monotonous to them at all. You can offset that with a sort of richness of acquired experience on your own or with a partner um, to where maybe it never bothers you that like your essential vantage, um, your sort of core position hasn't changed um, or hasn't evolved rather because it's really a kind of evolution, a metamorphosis. Yeah. One of the things Elliot Ackerman told me about having kids, he was like, one of the great things about it is it's always changing. You know, it's always different. Um, Oh man. It's it's, funny you bring him up. Yeah. yeah. I have a line from Elliot too about having kids that he told me at the Waverly Diner. Okay. He said to me, a really memorable line that's always stayed with me. He said, um, you know, it's, it's the only kind of love that just keeps getting like deeper and deeper and deeper and uh, doesn't go through the sort of, you know, uh, hot and cold flashes of, um, now he had just gotten divorced when he said this to me too. So I think, you know, <laughs> like that also might have. Uh, but it was a beautiful thing he was saying, or or he was about to get divorced. I think, but it was a beautiful thing he was saying, which was like that that uh, that it was a kind of love. Again, it's like it's not just it's not like ah the love you have for a, a woman or a man, but more. You know, it's a different kind of love. It's inaccessible to you otherwise it just opens up a a depth of experience that you can't reach otherwise and for me it's uh, my only regret you know is that um i i delayed it because i felt like i wasn't ready in some way and i look back and i think like no you were absolutely ready you know you just um you're scared maybe but that's not the same as not being ready yeah. So should we, let, let's talk quickly about the, um, I mean, cause Ian has some suggestions, right? So there's, you know, his sort of analysis of the culture and, 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 and the problems. And we sort of didn't talk about the, the analysis of some of the kind of structural changes that have affected the, the nature of the family that are good. And it's worth reading the whole essay. Um, but, um, he has sort of straightforward policy prescriptions, right? Because it's like, this is a public good. Uh, even if you don't have kids, having like a culture that supports family is 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 good for the nation. Um, uh, good for those you know kids who are currently living in poverty. Um, and it's like better childcare um, and support for childcare, intergenerational homes. You know that's one major thing. You know for me. Uh, there have been it would be great actually for me to be able to live with with other um generations of 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 my family and uh, we've thought about it but one of the the challenges is just you know we live in new york city it's hard it's expensive um there's not a lot of places on the market that are that are actually (coughs) set up to make that relatively easy, you know, to have like an older relative or whatever. Um, but I mean, God, I remember we had our first kid, we were actually living uh, briefly with my mother-in-law 
And it was the greatest thing, you know, like as soon as we had Adrian, it was just like, oh, like the nuclear family is insane, right? Like you come home with a kid and you're not supposed to be alone, right? You're supposed to have like all sorts of people around who like know how this is done and can help you out with, you know, the harder things of, of having like an infant that, you know, uh, that you need to learn and, and also just somebody to be like, Hey, I will, I will watch this baby for like a minute so you can breathe for a second. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and then balancing the culture of work to benefit families, right? He points out that 80% of working Americans get no time off to welcome a newborn into the world, um, which is, you know, unconscionable. And, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's actually crazy. Yeah. And that's, um, it's, it's hard enough having a newborn. Um, it also just feels like, you know, something really precious is being stolen, um, and uh, and replaced with unbelievable amounts of stress and financial pressure. Yeah. So Ian has a number of suggestions. One of which, to your point about uh, intergenerational families, is to um, ease kind of zoning and regulatory restrictions that currently make it difficult to build intergenerational family units. I would add to that, I think that there are, I've read proposals in the past um, for making neighborhoods conducive to intergenerational living. So not only the uh, unit, that the particular house or building or whatever, but you set it up so that there are financial incentives to make it so that um, children can live in the same neighborhoods or, or same, yeah. you know, counties or whatever the case may be as their, as their extended families. And I think uh, that's good as well. I really liked the proposal to pay, uh, you know, parents who want to stay at home for the first three years of their kid's life. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, he, he, he points out, he makes the argument, he says, the care of children, which is the literal formation of society's future, is too important to be left to the fluctuating whims of the market or an individual's job status, right? Which is just currently how it is. Um, but that, he says, child psychologists report that infants and toddlers who spend their days at home during the first three years tend to experience less stress, less illness, and fewer behavioral problems after the first three years of life. This dynamic shifts and the social and cognitive benefits of preschool and daycare begin to present our, present themselves. Yeah, look, we should move on to girls. But the, the last thing I'll say about this is this is one of these issues where there's really maximal opportunity for genuine bipartisan cooperation also. Right. So like <clears throat> Bernie Sanders has uh, advocated some of this stuff. So is Josh Hawley. Right. And right. I, I think J.D. Vance has as well. And, you know, not for nothing when I uh, one of the more memorable things I remember Tucker Carlson saying at the inaugural National Conservatism Conference was that uh, Elizabeth Warren had done more for America by writing the uh, the two income trap, than like you know any Republican politician currently serving, right? Um, so now Warren has subsequently backed off of some of the stuff that she um, 
that she advocated there, but I, but I think that there's still a, a real opportunity for a smart politician to get some of this done. Yeah. One hopes. Yeah. Yeah. One hopes. And, um, yeah. And also, um, if you are thinking that you're not ready to have kids, you're wrong. That's all, uh, <laughs> all I can tell you. You're ready. I don't know. That might not be universally true. No, no, no. no, no. If you're thinking about it, you're ready. That, that's It's as simple as that. You're ready. All right. All right. Now, speaking of um, children, girls. So here's what I'm going to say right, right off the bat, and I have to get this out of the way. Because I'm not anti-girls and I'm not anti-Lena Dunham. As Phil mentioned, he has watched the full series. I had not watched any full episodes prior to watching this one, but I had certainly, like, I certainly had absorbed what I understood to be the sort of zeitgeist of, of girls. And I also had seen, like, YouTube clips and so even had some familiarity with the characters. And uh, I knew that uh, Adam Driver, uh, you know, I think is a really terrific actor i knew that he was on the show and um, mm-hmm. i like him so i i had a an image marine. in my mind former marine right that's part of why i like him obviously and uh here's what was surprising to me the, the thing that just immediately struck me about it contra my expectations was just like oh this is a sitcom yeah and then i was like i felt so foolish to be surprised by that but I had so I had expected something more like that felt more culturally I don't know uh significant or I'm not even sure how to put it exactly but coming into it and having this sense of its cultural relevance and then sitting through a 27 minute episode structured like friends or like uh, you know, Law and Order, or or not Law and Order. That's in a sitcom, but like, but it's just it's a procedural, like it's a sitcom, like it just moves through these set pieces, and so, and it, you know, it's characters in wacky situations, and it's like this this one, you know, smoked crack, and like, and and oh, we're at a party in Bushwick, you know, it's just it's a situational comedy. With that out of the way. Because I was thrown off by that. I had, I guess, expected something. No, I really, I don't know what I expected. Maybe I expected, I'm not sure what I expected. I was thrown off by how sitcom it was right. structurally. But that's not a bad thing, necessarily. No. So with that out of the it's way. It's a really funny show. The, the, yeah. It's, it's I, it was watch. punchy writing. Yeah. Like it, it was certainly punchy writing. It The basic plot in that episode is they go to a party in Bushwick. It's like a warehouse party in Bushwick. The main Lena Dunham character runs into her, I guess, on again, off again, boyfriend, Adam Driver. Yeah. And then uh, also plot two is the free spirit um, British character. She accidentally texts her boss from work who thinks that she's flirting with him and he's a married guy and he shows up. She's his nanny. She's his nanny. Okay. But she doesn't realize she's gotten a text from him. Doesn't realize it's him. 
right. invites him to this party. He takes that as her coming on to him. Right. Right? Am I, I'm, yeah. And shows up at the party expecting that they're going to sleep together and that and wackiness ensues. Yeah. Right. But yeah, what am I missing here? Yeah. I mean, in terms of the, um, what we're talking about, I mean, one of the things that like girls is the, the show that launched a million think pieces. Right. And it was kind of famously the show that was liked both by sort of more typical left-wing culture writers, but also had this following among conservatives who felt that it was depicting all the, all the ills of, of, you know, um, modern society and modern youth culture, uh, because, you know, Lena Dunham is, um, I mean, I, I think, I think she's fantastic actually, but is not, not celebratory of the kind of like untrammeled, expressive, do whatever I want kind of spirit. I mean, sort of, so, you know, one of the jokes is the beginning the British character is like the free spirit. She's cool. She's above it all. She's like, as jaded as I am, I hold out the hope that this party will be the best party ever. Right. Right. And, and then she gets this text from a number and she doesn't save numbers in her phone. So she doesn't know who it is. Uh, And so she says, you know, come, come here. It's going to be the best party ever. And then it turns out to be her boss. Like she takes care of his kids and actually her sort of, free spiritedness uh, where she does whatever she wants, just kind of leaves a trail of wreckage. And there's a, you know, he humiliates himself um, by coming, ends up getting into a fist fight because of something that she does or gets beat up because of what she does. He knows it's going to cause an issue between him and his wife. And then the kind of final bit of this is, you know, he asked her to come home with her and, you know, she says, no, he calls her, it says she's a T. She says, I liked you better when you were being the the good guy. Uh, Can't we still be friends? And he says, we were never friends. You work for my kids. Right. And so it's like the, the, it just kind of reduces back to the money relationship, right. As like the way out of uh, kind of destructive emotional terrain. Right. Um, Meanwhile, like in terms of the other thing, uh, the Adam Driver character begins the show as like a clearly kind of abusive relationship um, and, you know, sort of does all sorts of things that would be cancelable, right? Um, Abusive as in emotionally manipulative. uh, A whole range of things, right? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And... um, but he's such a charismatic actor, right? And um, and Dunham became interested in like exploring him as a character in this relationship, right? And also the main character, Hannah, is sort of purely self-involved, interested in experience for experience's sake so she can then write about it, isn't really f- interested in other people. And the driver character is like begins as like an example of toxic masculinity, but then becomes like both appealing and repelling in in alternate moments. And so at the end of this scene, you know, this is the moment where, you know, they've had this relationship that um, the Hannah character is writing about and telling her friends about all the screwed up things that he does. 
and you know, sort of she chases him down and her friend comes in a taxi cab and like yells at him, like, I know everything you've done. You know, you're a bad person. I'm going to call the cops on you. This sort of like, she knows the way that you're supposed to respond to this character. Step away from her. Who are you? I'm her best friend. And I will not hesitate to press charges if you don't step away from her. I know all about you and your, your, your sick instincts, okay? And I'm not scared to be very clear with people about the kind of man that you are. And what Hannah actually wants is to be, you know, his, his girlfriend, right? And so right. it's just like this kind of complicated emotional train. I think that, you know, if you're from the conservative perspective, it's like, look, like the toxic male is actually an appealing character or something like that. I don't think that this show is making that kind of statement one way or the other, but it's not interested in, in, in dismissing characters. Well, that would be the dumb red pill. Uh, hey, look, the guy who treats her like garbage gets her argument. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine the conservative argument would be more um, self-absorbed narcissists uh, like leave each other unhappy would be the the more conservative argument. Yeah, which is a continual um, theme of the show, right? Right, right. And she seems certainly aware of this. And look, I I know that uh, uh, any number of people, Alex, our former producer, Alex Lynn, yeah. told me it's a really smart show. Park McDougald, who recommended this episode, you know, I know he thinks it's a smart show. A number of people. Uh, I know you've told me it's it's good. Uh, it's hard to get all of that from one episode because, again, like what you get from a single episode, and it's not fair to this kind of show to judge it by a single episode. What you get is those sitcom-y beats are like yeah. what's most immediately apparent if you don't have background on the characters. But insofar as there's a depiction of I, look, there are two things that I got from this as relates to our theme, yeah. right? One is you have this the straightforward window into the millennial view of family life, which you get through this um, kind of pathetic uh, older male character we were describing. I say older, he's probably supposed to be like 45 or something. Yeah. Uh, the guy who comes to the party in Bushwick thinking he's going to get laid by his kids nanny and ends up like just showing himself to be pathetic and, yeah. and a loser. The other thing you get is the view of kind of the pre family life world, which is the relationship forming the self identity. And in both cases, uh, certainly it seems to be, how would I put it? Um, Certainly, it seems to be presenting characters who have uh, a very truncated and uh, self-driven view of their own desires and purposes and um, like the... It, it 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 doesn't have what I can get from this episode, and I I don't have much else to judge it by. It doesn't have what I see here—a view of like the the 
world of the family and the world of these characters in their 20s in relation to one another so much or as both being elements of a larger world, it has a sort of opposition and implicit opposition between them, right? Like there is family life somewhere over there, maybe on the other side of this adventure of youth or this adventure of, you know, indolent adventure of like extended adolescence, which by turns is thrilling and disappointing and enervating and erotic and like, but somewhere over there, there is this thing, adulthood, the family. And then when you arrive at that thing, adulthood, the family, it turns out, at least as far as what we get from this one character, that like you're still sort of a pathetic adolescent ultimately in your own way. Well, you're, you're pathetic you when, you try and, back. when you try and recover the, the youth. Yeah. Okay. You, you know, I mean, right. I think one of the interesting things that the show does is you know, Hannah is sort of consistently a narcissistic character throughout. And then it ends with her having like the shattering experience of having a baby, right? Like, ah, and, that's how the series ends. Mm-hmm. And ah. it's not presented as like an easy, beautiful thing necessarily. It's brutally, brutally hard. Um, but you sort of have the sense that this is, sort of like a good thing for her. Um, that this is like, in, this is the moment when, you, know, you said it before, like all sorts of things are kind of fungible and you can sort of drift in and out of relationships and um, and then and then there's a being that's wholly dependent on you, right? And you can no longer be the center, right? Um, and that is she is, married in the show when she has the baby? No. Is she in a relationship? No, I think she's doing it on her own. Um, oh, it's been a while since I've seen the show. Yeah, but I... I'm, I would have guessed. I mean, if you had, like... Uh, okay, but that's interesting. Um, that's interesting. Do you remember, is it, is it planned or unplanned or... Unplanned. Yeah. So... So she runs into the end of her own shiftless, self-indulgent youth in the form of a um, child who she wants to mother. Right. Yeah. And right, like a, certainly yeah. in the world of the, of the show, abortion would have been an option, mm -hmm. but she decides not to have an abortion. Yeah. There's a famous scene in the show where... Um, Adam Driver has like another girlfriend who like has an abortion right, right. without telling him about it. And then she tells it to him as if it's like, uh, you know, she says something on the lines of like, um, Oh yeah. Like I'm feeling like a little weird just cause you know, I had an abortion the other day and he, you know, sort of freaks out about it. Right. Um, so that just went viral like last week, a month after we decided to do girls. Yeah. That clip ended up going viral. So I've seen that clip. Um, yeah, I mean, anytime a, I mean, so it's, it's just a, it's just a, an artist dealing with abortion as, as a complex moral issue, right? There's an interesting passage in, in a book by Zinzi Clemens where 
um, the character has an abortion and she goes with her friend and she says, um, we didn't talk about the, uh, I think the line is something like, we didn't talk about the ethics of our decision because our politics took care of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. Um, and you know, it's just that. Yeah. That that's, that's girls, a smart line. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, it's just like, okay, like here's this thing that our politics have settled. Right. Um, and then I'm just going to depict the kind of, uh, emotional, more complex emotional kind of undercurrent, right? Uh, and in that, yeah. But what I was getting at totally is totally blasé about it is not like a appealing, right? Character, ultimately, right? Right, right. Certainly, that one scene she doesn't right. come across is appealing. The the girlfriend, yeah. <clears throat> what I was getting at also though is that given that the politics have settled the question in the world of the show and in the world of this character, the fact that she decides to have the baby. Um, I would understand having not seen the episode as a kind of affirmation, right? So there is something, I, you know, I, yeah, something beyond the self, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe I'll have to watch more of it. I might, uh, if I can ever um, find time, I, I would. I would watch more of it. I don't know what I was thinking, man. Maybe I just have like the Sopranos as the archetypal HBO show and uh, which had its own sort of sitcom elements in the first season. I couldn't watch but that. Then, I couldn't at watch all? That. Or you... No, I watched a couple episodes. Yeah. People were so awful um, that uh, I didn't want to spend more time with them. I mean, the people and girls are pretty awful as well, but uh, it's funnier. Um, so it's funny you said I think The Sopranos is funnier and given the choice from what I've seen... Given the choice between the awfulness of the Sopranos people and the awfulness of the girls people, I, I will take the Jersey thugs anytime. <laughs> Maybe only because it's yeah, because yeah, it's less uh, less intimate, uh, less familiar in its way. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'll take that. Kind also, of in girls and characters you sort of admire, I like the the Ray is the character who's uh, at the band finishes playing. You know, he's like, uh, "Who brought a baby? Use your head." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like the this. one who runs after the other girl to yes uh, yeah that guy go. right yeah. who's sort of like you know trying to be a relatively responsible human right in right. Uh, a world full of you know narcissistic children yeah there was a oh, what was it i should have uh, jotted it down there was a very good line in there um yeah i mean look the writing is crisp um yeah i i i would watch more you know, I would watch more. I think this has been a <laughs> profound discussion of girls. I think uh... <laughs> I realize that for for art, either you need it like you need something that really works on its own, which is hard with episodic TV that you have no background on, or you need to do the thing as a series. Like if we had both watched girls, we could have talked about girls. Um, but having not watched Girls to pluck one episode from the middle of a season and think it's going to work was maybe a little misguided on my part. <laughs> well. Listen, but we make mistakes on this show, people. It's it's all too human, and um, we appreciate your, uh, your indulgence of our frequent mistake-making, which we know adds to the charm. So, all right, Philly, me boy. All right, Jake. Go forth, have babies. Next time.
from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>